Welcome to August JNMP Podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up later, can stress trigger Parkinson's disease? Andrew Lees talks us through the evidence. One of the things that I think will resonate with most of my colleagues is that if you ask individual patients what they think might have triggered their Parkinson's disease, uh, chronic stress, life events, marital breakups, financial worries, these are very, very common. But first, a look at new criteria for frontotemporal dementia syndromes. Here's JNMP editor Matthew Kiernan. Well, it's a great pleasure to have Professor Glenda Halliday from Neurosciences Research Australia, and she's here to discuss her manuscript, which has been selected as the editor's choice for this month's Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry. So the paper is covering new criteria for frontotemporal dementia syndromes. So welcome, Glenda. Thank you. It's good to be here. Perhaps you could give us a bit of an overview about why you decided to, to do this study. We decided to do the study because of two things. Both different criterias have changed recently. The criteria for clinical assessment of frontotemporal dementia syndromes has only recently been reviewed and reassessed. And there's new criteria for progressive aphasias and new criteria for behavioural variant frontotemporal dementia. Most commonly, these are seen in clinical neurological practices as a overarching syndromes. And so we wanted to look at how the new criteria related to old criteria so that if you had previously seen a patient, it would be easy to see how a new criteria would relate to a previous diagnosis. And then secondly, the pathological diagnoses have changed. And so we wanted to know how the new criteria related to underlying pathologies. So there were those diagnostic issues that we were trying to address in this paper. How would these patients typically present to a neurologist? Uh, behavioural variant frontotemporal dementia is, is virtually what it says. They come in with uh, diverse abnormal behaviours, so it, it depends. The current criteria, the new criteria have identified a number of different things like disinhibition, apathy, loss of empathy, stereotypic behaviours, altered food preferences can um, be a, an, an, a tweaking identity that's good to see, and executive deficits. So those are the behavioural features. For the primary progressive aphasias, there's now three main categories. Um, they're called a semantic, Uh, non-fluent, which were previously in the frontotemporal dementia syndromes, and a new category called logopenic, which can look a little bit like Alzheimer's disease. They have more uh, word-finding difficulties and they actually have more word and sentence repetition, um, uh, like you might have forgotten the word. So that's a new category that's actually come into the uh, aphasia lexicon. So there's three different types. The semantic um, is that you actually lose the ability to know what the words mean. Uh, Non-fluent, you can't produce the words. And this logopenic, which has some overlap with Alzheimer's disease and is more like repetition and you can't uh, find the words or get them out properly. So how did you go about sort of putting this study together, particularly, I suppose, in terms of the um, ascertainment of cases? 
Well, it it was a slightly different, difficult one to do because the uh, to be certain to be able to assess the underlying pathology, we had to look for large uh, clinical series that had detailed enough clinical phenotypes and clinical information that we could then apply the new criteria to but also had come to autopsy. So we were very lucky because um, John Hodges has got a very good clinic that he's been running for quite a long time now, uh, a couple of decades I think, at in, over in Cambridge. And then in parallel with working with tertiary referral centres here, which also had quite good detailed uh, clinical assessments and neuropsychological assessments and imaging, and so and also have been doing autopsies over a similar time period. The two areas have quite a similar demographic in terms of how many uh, populations that they actually are ascertained from. And, and it's interesting because it's a similar number of cases that are ascertained in the two populations, which gives a little confidence that we really are looking at something that might be fairly similar in terms of a population base. So we were, it's a long time work over two large centres um, c- collecting uh, autopsy cases and then being able to go back to these very detailed records to get this information. Well, it's a great resource and an incredibly important study. Perhaps you could just give us an overview of, of your findings. The good thing was, in terms of clinical, is many of the clinical diagnostic categories are fairly similar. And as I said, the one that's actually different is the pro- progressive aphasias. So within the progressive aphasias, the most category that changes the most is the one that's non-fluent. And about 50% of patients previously thought to have primarily a non-fluent aphasia actually will have this new logopenic type. Now, you might ask why would that be important, Um, but the underlying pathology for those two clinical phenotypes is different. And what we found is that the logopenic type of aphasia actually does have predominantly an Alzheimer's disease pathology and not a frontotemporal dementia pathology. So it's important, an important distinction to make um, because those patients may actually benefit from current treatments for Alzheimer's disease. So um, even, even though it doesn't seem like an important thing, it, it, it is an important thing in a clinical setting. We also found that Alzheimer's disease was not as distinct. There are other syndromes, other patients in the other populations that did have Alzheimer's disease. The majority were this logopenic form. And we've actually started to identify clinical features that can differentiate the other Alzheimer cases in behavioural variant or semantic variant or all of those other variants. So we've actually also identified some indicators that can give a a little bit of a a tweak as to potentially uh, patients that may have an Alzheimer diagnosis pathologically that look clinically a bit like frontotemporal dementia. So... If I understand it correctly, are you suggesting that the clinicians are actually going reasonably well in terms of delineating these conditions? That's right. When we did the matching to previous diagnosis, there was, a, you know, most of them, 90% were accurately identified clinically with the new criteria. When we look at pathology, um, 
probably a little bit more than we'd expect, 30% of patients had Alzheimer's disease rather than frontotemporal dementia pathologies. But the bulk of those were in the logopenic group. So there's a, a um, uh, the next group that had the most Alzheimer's was the non-fluid variant. Um, and that's probably because it's still a little difficult to completely distinguish non-fluent and logopenic. And so there's a little bit of a mix of Alzheimer's in, in both groups. And so you mentioned that a few features didn't really help to distinguish. You mentioned uh, disinhibition, food preferences and naming. Were there any sort of clues that you could give that would help to sort of uh, differentiate the, the, the cohorts, the FTD cohorts from Alzheimer's? There was. So if, if they had any neuropsychiatric features, they were Alzheimer's disease. None of the patients that had frontotemporal dementia pathologies had any neuropsychiatric features. So that's actually a clear indicator of, of uh, potentially an underlying Alzheimer's disease. If they had an object agnosia, then they actually also often had Alzheimer's disease and phonological errors also was more prevalent in Alzheimer's disease, although it did occur in some of the frontotemporal dementia. So um, neuropsychiatric features in our cohort was relatively rare, though, but when they occurred, they really did, at onset, they really did uh, identify patients with Alzheimer's disease. And what about the age of onset between the conditions? If you look at the, uh, at the clinical cohort, there isn't a big difference between the age of onset, but there was one pathological group which had an earlier age of onset, and that was the patients that had uh, fuss inclusions. And in fact, they were quite only the ones that were of very early onset um, actually were patients that had fuss inclusions rather than other inclusions. So an early onset indicates um, a particular proteinopathy, um, but not necess- and they're more likely to be a behavioural variant and have fuss. Um, so the, the primary progressive aphasias don't often have an early onset. In fact, that's very similar to um, the genetics of, of motor neuron disease. So, in fact, the FUS mutations tend to be quite... Like if you have very young patients, that tends to be a FUS mutation. Yeah, that must be something very nasty about FUS, I think. Very aggressive. What about um, C9-ORF mutations? The difficulty with this is that a lot of the cases are from very, you know, for over a 20-year period. And so the number of cases that have... Um, have tissue available in a form that we can actually um, have the C9 gene screened is is low. So in terms of looking at a large number of them in the cohort, we can't do that. Our newer cohorts will be different, but this is a a large retrospective cohort. Our current work would suggest that about 30% of the patients that had the uh, behavioural variant would definitely be C9s. Uh, ORF72, um, but at the moment I can't say exactly what clinical features in this cohort actually differentiate them. I noticed that in the literature there's quite a varied differentiation between the, the uh, C9s uh, positives and negative uh, cohorts, and so I think that as larger and larger cohorts are identified, uh, um, we'll get more detail on those aspects. 
Well, I'd just like to congratulate you, Glenda, on a, a really fantastic study. I mean, it's a massive uh, undertaking from the Cambridge Brain Bank and the Sydney Brain Bank to bring such huge sort of resources together and really get to the bottom of this, um, you know, very critical condition, frontotemporal dementia. So your manuscript is the editor's choice, and so it will be freely downloadable from the JNNP website. Oh, that's fantastic news. Thank you very much. And now on to an old but unresolved question. Can emotional stress trigger Parkinson's? Andrew Lees, professor at the UCL Institute of Neurology, has co-authored a viewpoint just published in JNMP, laying out the evidence we have so far. He came into the studio to talk me through it. The view that emotional stress might trigger Parkinson's disease has been around for more than 100 years. Um, Gowers, one of the founding fathers of British neurology, wrote that pro- prolonged anxiety and emotional shock were the most common antecedents of Parkinson's disease. And one of the things that I think will resonate with most of my colleagues is that if you ask individual patients what they think might have triggered their Parkinson's disease, uh, chronic stress, life events, marital breakups, financial worries. Th- these are very, very common things. Now, of course, um, sceptics would say that in a progressive neurodegenerative disease where we don't know the cause, uh, people look around to try and find an explanation. And uh, stress, like viruses, is, of course, one of the things that we always Uh, put blame on when we can't find uh, a specific explanation so our paper was really to try and circle around this issue and uh, try to provide what circumstantial evidence there is to support the notion that chronic stress might at the very least trigger Parkinson's disease in susceptible individuals and actually might uh, lead to damage, neuronal damage, and it was coincidental that as we were uh, writing and collecting the literature for this, um, several papers came out to suggest that Alzheimer's disease uh, might also be more likely to happen in people who are under chronic stress with an increased 2.7% higher risk of developing the disease if you had emotional stress and that stressed dementia patients had a more rapid disease progression. So it seemed as if the doctors interested in Alzheimer's disease research were also exploring the same area that we were doing in Parkinson's disease. Do you think um, that evidence that it's similar in Alzheimer's disease kind of implies that the cause and effect is that is that way around, that it's the stress causing the neurodegeneration rather than the neurodegeneration making patients more susceptible to stress? As often in neurology, what's the chicken and what's the egg is very difficult. And um, it may be that uh, susceptibility to stress might actually be a harbinger for both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So you you could perhaps argue that um, the very first signs of these diseases is a a susceptibility to stress, um, uh, perhaps through genetics. So that, that that's... 
then it's difficult to to say that the stress is actually uh, responsible for the symptoms and you could argue that it's actually part and parcel of the disease itself and uh, this has been the difficulty in moving this area forward I think up until now. Uh, I mean I should emphasize at this point that we're not talking about short self-limiting stresses although these things can aggravate all the symptoms of Parkinson's disease but uh, what we were trying to discuss in our article was the the notion that uh, intolerable long-term chronic stress might actually trigger the disease itself and uh, of course one of the problems is the definition of stress and um, we resorted to the Oxford English Dictionary to uh, as it seemed to be as good a definition of any that we could find in the literature and the Oxford Dictionary uh, defines stress as a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or demanding circumstances. Yes, it's um, sort of helpful, isn't it? It's not particularly acute. So what about the the, the possible mechanisms, digging down a little bit further, that this kind of long-term stress um, could lead to neurodegeneration? Is there much evidence or work here? I mean, most of the work on chronic stresses suggests that it results from prolonged activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and triggers what's been called uh, allostatic load, a failure of adequate coping mechanisms to reduce stress. Um, This has been linked with lifestyle diseases such as type 2 diabetes, uh, which is interesting because um, there, there is a lot of interest at the moment in links between type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's disease and also Alzheimer's disease um, so that this is perhaps another lifestyle disease that might link in with Parkinson's and has been also linked with um, uh, chronic stress. The mechanisms uh, other than the activation of cytokines and the reduction in the regulatory T lymphocytes are that Um, Although catecholamines are stored in vesicles in the brain, in nerve cells, if they they got out into the cytosol, then they can cause oxidative stress and excite nerve cells to death. So there is quite a lot of evidence, for example, from the 6-hydroxydopamine animal model of Parkinson's disease, where if you stress the lesioned animal... Uh, in any way, t- tail pinching or other, other ways, it's mild shocking treatments, you can trigger uh, Parkinsonism in an animal which, in free conditions, feeding and so on, doesn't ex- actually exhibit any signs of Parkinsonism. And this is being correlated with a release of catecholamines uh, into the uh, system. So it may be that. Uh, you can excite these dopamine nerve cells to death with excessive mm. chronic stress. Mm. And then tell me a bit about the um, the, the transient Parkinson's or, or the, the Parkinson's-like symptoms that are seemingly caused by stress that you discuss in your article. 
We've spent a lot of time reviewing the available literature on shell shock from the First World War, um, and there is quite a lot of video footage of um, shell shock victims. The Welcome Foundation have some, and other, there are other sources of very interesting uh, material on this. And in fact, we include in our article a video clip, which I think is very interesting, and it it shows. Although uh, many individuals with shell shock have um, symptoms associated with, with with fear, so that they're often shaking uh, or frozen with fear, these are the body language that we all associate with acute fear. And you can see this on some of these um, video clips. There are some examples of um, patients who uh, or shell shock victims who really very closely resemble Parkinson's disease. Now we know that um, under severe stress some individuals develop what's called psychogenic Parkinsonism and this has to be distinguished from the organic Parkinson's disease so it's conceivable of course that um, some of these patients that we're seeing on these clips and we're reading the descriptions by the neurologists and psychiatrists who looked after them actually had psychogenic Parkinsonism but one or two of them we we've been very struck with they looked to us like Parkinson's disease and one of them is shown on the video clip and I'd like to just read uh, actually, it's a, a quote from the paper um, of one of the descriptions of a, a World War One soldier um, uh, and what the doctor who was um, looking after him saw. Uh, so he, he wrote, The eyes were wide open and had a pained, vacant stare. He cannot move his legs, which are rigid, as in many of these patients, the sole of the foot is shuffled along the ground. Another form of tremor, which is coarser and less rapid than the preceding, namely a five to six per second tremor, is that which resembles paralysis agitans. And then other observers have reported balance uh, problems, the trunk is flexed, Anteriorly, the legs are partially bent at the knees, the arms hang low and stiffly at the sides, giving a simian appearance to the whole posture, and coarse tremors develop in the hands and legs. The face is mask-like, without expression. So any neurologist reading that would immediately say, this is Parkinson's disease. Yes, it's very intriguing. And, and you actually had a couple of patients who... Um, recovered. Recovered, yeah. yes. You, you thought had Parkinson's and then you worked with them to, to remove this, this chronic stress and they, they seemed to recover. Tell me about that. Yes, of course, the, the easiest explanation is that I got the diagnosis wrong. Um, it, it may be that the, they had what's been called psychogenic Parkinsonism. Personally, I don't think that's correct because I, I, I felt that they did have motor decrement and, and the actual signs of Parkinson's disease. Whether they had a sort of masked depression and the body language of depression can often masquerade as Parkinson's disease uh, with a hangdog appearance, a slowness and so on or not is I think a possibility but what 
I wondered at the time, and it was, of course, these patients I saw before dopamine transporter scans were available, so we were not able to routinely check dopamine levels on them, um, was whether some form of compensation had occurred in the dopamine system so that they'd had, as a result of this chronic emotional stress, they'd their dopamine levels had dropped below a critical level and then as they'd got better and the stressful events had lessened their dopamine system had been able to compensate and the symptoms of Parkinson's disease have gone underground now if that's the case one would probably expect that they would continue to be at greater risk of Parkinson's redeveloping in the future. You move on to talk about uh, Kinesia Paradoxica which is is very intriguing because that's the opposite almost. So you have Parkinson's symptoms which are relieved by, um, you know, a very acute, short time span stress. So how would you explain that? Yes, the, this is the, the, these phenomena are very rare but very well documented in the literature of Parkinson's disease. I mean, I'm not talking. Uh, I'm distinguishing this phenomenon from. Uh, the sort of uh, acute stresses from visu- which can be helped by visual uh, musical and pro- proprioceptive cueing. So, for example, if somebody freezes and blocks, you can override that by visual cues. These are really life-threatening uh, incidents, usually um, shipwrecks, uh, fires in people's houses. We don't know what causes this but one of the ideas is um, that an acute surge of uh, catecholamines particularly noradrenaline or adrenaline in response to an acute life-threatening stress and perhaps changes in the cortisol hypothalamic pituitary axis may override some of the symptoms of Parkinson's so as you say this is uh, in, in a way, the opposite of, of of the notion that chronic stress could damage the dopamine systems, but um, noradrenaline and uh, adrenaline may temporarily, in short bursts, actually overcome these problems. And um, we, we know that Parkinson's can have a variety of symptoms outside the you know the the, the best known motor ones um, for example related to mood or, or urination or, or sexual function uh, and many of these are actually expressed before the, the motor symptoms as well so so looking at these these symptoms could you relate or, or map them to any conditions which are known to be caused by stress yes I think there's, there's been a great deal of interest in um, the prodromal period as it's been called of Parkinson's disease that's to say before a neurologist could accurately diagnose the condition so there's been a great deal of research in the last few de- years looking at uh, early possible uh, clues to the development of Parkinson's uh, before the tremor rigidity or bradykinesia are evident to the patient and, and to doctors and a lot of that work has focused on non-motor symptoms um, uh, the most robust are uh, an impairment of sense of smell and probably REM sleep behavior disorder those two seem to be um, early 
non-motor symptoms which occur much more frequently in people at risk of Parkinson's disease than in an age-matched population. We, we've been particularly interested and emphasised in this article the clinical overlap between what have been called the functional somatic symptoms uh, and non-motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease. And what I mean by that are these constellations of, uh, some people say, medically unexplained symptoms which make up syndromes such as fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome and many of the um, non-motor harbingers of Parkinson's disease bear a very striking similarity to the symptoms that are described in those conditions. Mm. Now those three conditions have great overlaps with one another um, so that they almost merge into one another so that where fibromyalgia ends and chronic fatigue syndrome begins and where ir irritable colon begins is also very blurred so that many uh, authorities would li link them all together and there's been quite a bit of work linking dopaminergic dysfunction and the hypothalamic pituitary access to these functional somatic syndromes so we don't want to infer in our article that chronic fatigue syndrome is a precursor to Parkinson's disease. I mean, the, the, I, I want to emphasize that chronic fatigue syndrome is a, a disorder which is potentially remediable and can get better. Um, and Parkinson's disease, apart from perhaps the couple of cases of reversible Parkinson's that I've talked to you about, is really considered to be a disorder that does get worse with time despite optimum treatment but what we're trying to emphasize in this is that a study of these functional somatic sy syndromes uh, and their clinical picture and the mechanisms which underlie them may also shed some light on some of the non-motor symptoms that we commonly see in people with Parkinson's disease. And, and give us an overview of the, the research that you'd like to, to see going forward to, to shed more light on, on all of this because your, your article is a viewpoint and, and you've written in it that it's a, a theory and you're not claiming that the evidence is, is strong enough to, um, to, to back this up just yet. So what would you like to see going forward? Well, well of course, I think... Um doctors must continue to listen to their patients and they must pay attention to what patients tell them. I mean to give you uh, one example about of that I mean a few years ago a couple of patients told me that their Parkinson's disease had begun immediately after open-heart surgery which is clearly a, a fairly stressful procedure. I mean, of course, it involves bypass and, and complicated anesthesia too, which may be a factor, but um, it's now recognized uh, with a couple of papers that um, major surgery can uh, trigger Parkinson's disease. So th this is something that comes out of what patients tell you. And I think... Um, despite the difficulties of quantifying stress, we still need to try and probe and find out what our patients think might be the 
uh, trigger for their disease. And there have been many important patient discoveries in Parkinson's disease. Uh, for example, the discovery that protein in the diet blocks the effect of L-dopa in Parkinson's disease was a patient discovery discovered by patients and now we we recognized it much af after the patients but as far as research is is concerned I mean I think it's possible that um, hypersensitivity to stress may be genetically determined and that this could result in alterations in methylation of DNA which in turn is known to regulate alpha-synuclein expression which of course is uh, one of the key players in our concept of the pathogenesis of, of Parkinson's disease. Uh, it's also been shown that shortening of leukocyte telomeres has been found in individuals with a stressful life and these shorter telomeres have also been linked with Parkinson's disease in some uh, but not all studies. So screening of um, Parkinson's disease patients and patients with functional somatic syndrome such as chronic fatigue syndrome for polymorphisms that are known to be important for stress regulation might be one important future line of epigenetic research that could take what I suppose to the scientist is at the moment a sort of murky tea leaf like uh, pseudoscience. Mm. And then finally, what would you what would you tell patients who who are listening to this or, or have read the paper? I, th I think um, the old advice for people with Parkinson's disease was all always to lead a stress free life, minimise the amount of coffee you drink. Although we now think coffee might actually be beneficial for Parkinson's disease, but uh, it can drive the sympathetic system quite quite hard if you drink a lot of it. Um, modify your lifestyle um, uh, to to minimize stressful life events I think is is still good advice for people with Parkinson's disease and we're uh, of course it, it it will be very interesting to see um, what effect strenuous physical exercise has on the disease progression. Um, uh, there's quite a bit of evidence now to suggest that midlife obesity is a risk factor for Parkinson's disease and it might be that a lack of physical exercise at critical times may trigger Parkinson's disease. So I think further work on the importance of exercise and its links with stress relief, chronic stress relief, may be something useful. Now of course once people have got Parkinson's disease then we know that stress temporarily aggravates their symptoms so I, th I think um, that's a secondary issue I mean of, of to d just dealing with stress relief and many patients with Parkinson's disease have chronic have anxiety um, little things become big things their buffer reserves for dealing with anxiety become much less and, and often you have to treat uh, anxiety in people with Parkinson's disease as a separate uh, treatment uh, initiative um, so I think neurologists need to be aware of that and, and uh, patients need to uh, tell their doctors about anxiety and panic uh, when it occurs.
Well, Andrew, thanks very much for your, your time and advice. It's a very rich and compelling paper. Thank you very much. And that article is also available for free on jnmp.bmj.com. Next month, we're taking a look at consensus guidelines for stereotactic neurosurgery, that is for psychiatric disorders, and also tricks to relieve dystonia symptoms. But just before we go, a teaser from the latest Practical Neurology podcast. In strolled one day a very unassuming uh, young, very short, slight, thin fellow, obviously Fox, uh, with a backpack slung over his shoulders, wearing jeans, sat down, threw his backpack on the floor and said, call me Mike. As is now well known, Hollywood actor Michael J. Fox was diagnosed with Parkinson's at the age of 30. He's now written a memoir describing his experience of the disease. And pianista Phil Smith discusses the book with Fox's neurologist, early-onset Parkinson's expert Hugh Morris, as well as the Practical Neurology Book Club. Find the full podcast via the PN website, that's pn.bmj.com, or follow the link from this podcast page. Thanks for listening and come back next month. <laughs>